While you're standing, please take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We are beginning a new series on the uh, pastoral letters of the Apostle Paul. I'm excited about this series. I'm excited about every series. And uh, so I trust that this will be a blessing to you. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and uh, we're going to focus on the first two verses, the introduction today and some of the things growing out of that. But to set the stage for what is coming in the days ahead, I want to read all the way through verse 11. So read silently as I read aloud. Please follow this with your hearts, not just your heads, and uh, pick up what the Apostle Paul, the aged one in his 60s, and he was counted as aged then, said to a young man probably in his mid-40s, a young pastor, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace Mercy and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Father, you have not only entrusted the Apostle Paul in a very special way, the glorious gospel, but also the, the fountain of sound doctrine in the scriptures. But Lord, you have given those to us. And those who know you here today, we have a choice, young or old, to devote ourselves to that which is sound doctrine or to devote ourselves to that which is not. Father, we know, we've just read, that the outcome of devoting ourselves to sound doctrine is good conduct. 
godly living in the outcome of devoting ourselves to that which is other than sound doctrine will be a whole host of things that you call evil and unholy and profane. So God, we give you ourselves today. This is your word. I cry out to you for clarity as I seek to to lead out the meaning and then to apply what is here to us today. And I pray that in the end we would see it, that our lives would be transformed even today by the sound doctrine that we will be hearing and that we will live out that sound doctrine through godly conduct. I thank you and I praise you for what you're going to do. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. You've been standing for a while now. So get relaxed, at least physically, but not spiritually or mentally, because we're going to run through these two verses. There's more here than I can possibly hope to get to today, but we're going to skim the highlights and draw out some application that I think is absolutely important. Now, Let me start with this, like I normally do when I start a new series, Old or New Testament, and these are going to be, I'm I'm going to give you three reasons why I chose the pastoral epistles. Now, if you're not familiar with that word epistle, that just means letter. That's a churchy word for letter. So the pastoral epistles, and we'll explain what that means in just a little bit, they are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. So Why study the pastoral epistles of Paul, the pastoral letters of Paul? Number one, you could have guessed this because they're in the Bible. Hello? Have we said these kinds of things over and over and over again because they're important? Every word of God that is in the Bible is profitable to us. Now, I'm focusing on something today that the Apostle Paul focuses on throughout all of the books of his pastoral letters. And so I've, I've added some things to this, and I've combined some verses together. But just read it again. You've heard it before, but it makes a point. All Scripture, that's this divinely inspired book that you hold in your hand, or that is coming out of a smartphone or or device or whatever the case may be. But all Scripture is God-breathed. It is divinely inspired, and it it is super profitable, all of it. Even the parts that are hard, if you're reading through the Old Testament and you, you come upon those, those things that are difficult to understand, just read them, plow through it. And ask God to give you wisdom and understanding. So it's profitable for what? The very first thing is this. It's profitable for teaching, it says. Now, normally when we hear that word, we think of what I'm doing here or what happens in ABF or Sunday school or on Wednesday night or in your ladies or men's Bible studies. It's just a, a kind of a teaching, somebody sharing something, maybe an opinion, maybe a story. But the Apostle Paul said this, it's profitable for doctrine. And that word I chose to use as the title for 1 Timothy, sound doctrine, godly living. Doctrine is a little bit more formal, and we'll get into this. What does doctrine mean? What does sound doctrine mean? 
That's what the teaching of the Word of God is. It is sound doctrine. So, the Word of God is profitable for doctrine, and out of that doctrine flows, at times, reproof. Have you ever been on the receiving end of reproof? Ah, it's not pleasant, is it? But it's needful. Reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. First reason, we're studying the pastoral letters of Paul, so that you can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Second reason that we're studying the pastoral epistles, the letters of Paul, they all, as I just said, stress the importance of sound doctrine and godly living growing out of this. These two things always go together. Let that sink in. If you are really getting sound doctrine in your heart, and it's not just glancing off of your head, then it always will lead to godly conduct as defined in, guess what? Sound doctrine. The two always go together. If you're not, if your life right now is not the experience of your life is not godly conduct, then somehow or the other, whether you've been coming to this church or another church, the sound doctrine has not been making its way into your heart, folks. You can write it down. Quoting a lot out of First and Second Timothy and Titus. If you put these things before your brothers, that's what I'm trying to do. This is what he said, Timothy, as a pastor. He left him here to, to, to teach the pastors and to teach the people. And by the way, Timothy stayed, tradition says, for the rest of his ministry at this church. He stayed for a long time. If you put these things before the brothers, the sound doctrine, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Man, that, that's, that's our calling. Dads, if you put these things before your children, you will be a good servant of Christ. Grandfather, I could just go on down the line. It's not just for preachers and teachers and elders. It's for all of us who have the responsibility of helping the next generation come up, okay? Being trained in the words of the faith and of the what? Good doctrine, the sound doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent Silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. We're going to get into this next week and in the weeks to follow and, and may, maybe even touch on it today about these irreverent silly myths. Rather train yourself for godliness. Now, this word, good doctrine, there is good doctrine, sound doctrine, and then there is other doctrine. I really want you to hear this point because it, it is absolutely essential. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, we just read this, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons. Okay, now, now stop right there. This is not something that we're attacking outside the church, although we can point to things that are amiss outside the church, right? 
These are people in the church, in the local church of Ephesus, but also in the church at large. We could say the American church. We could say the worldwide church. You may charge certain persons not to teach any different or other doctrine. Now, I love word studies. And, and if you look this up, and I've, I've shown many of you how to do this, shown many of you how to do this, if you go to Blue Letter Bible, and it'll, it'll pronounce it out for you, the word there for other doctrine is the word from which we get our word today, heterodoxy. Some of you are saying heterowatsy. These are you words that some of you are familiar with. There is orthodoxy, which is right and true and good, and you can take it to the bank teaching doctrine that is from God. It is absolute. And then there is, that's orthodoxy, all right? You've heard that word, orthodox. It just means right teaching. And then, according to the Apostle Paul, there's everything else. Now, I want you to hear that. Close doesn't count. Paul describes every other teaching that it's not orthodox, sound doctrine, as heterodoxy, other doctrine. False doctrine. If it's not true, what is it? If it's not right, what is it? There is no neutrality. And throughout the, the pastoral letters, we're going to see this over and over again. And we live today in a culture that is encroaching and it's coming into the church where we want to say, even though there is right, there's this little neutral zone where we can be kind of right. And we hear it all the time. Your truth. You ever heard somebody say that? We've heard certain politicians say that. Hey, we're not surprised if lost people say that. Even if they profess faith in Christ, they're not they're not espousing good doctrine. But what is even more hurtful is when you hear preachers and teachers in the church say that. Your truth and my truth. Hey, we can live with them both. Here's another one. It really doesn't matter. Now, students, I, I can tell you, you are being inundated with this. Some of us who are older, we've been able to kind of insulate ourselves. But many of you are living out there and you're seeing these things and hearing these things. And so you hear something like this. It doesn't matter what one believes as long as that person is sincere. I've used this illustration before, but I'm going to use it again because it's a good one. You get up in the middle of the night, you've got a raging headache. And so you go into the cabinet, maybe it's in the kitchen or in the bathroom or wherever it is, and you reach up for a bottle of Tylenol so that you can 
solve that, that headache. Unbeknownst to you, your wife has been doing some exterminating, and she is put right beside the bottle of Tylenol, a bottle of rat poison. You reach up, you're bleary-eyed. Now, let me ask you this. Does it matter which one you get? If you get the rat poison, you've taken care of your headache. But you're dead. Well, what if, what if, I, what if I take one of each? That is the kind of, of thinking that is prevalent in culture, not just American culture, in, in, in all cultures, and particularly in the church of Jesus Christ today. And let me tell you this, in the church, and you know this if you studied, if you listened, if you open your computer to certain things and read certain websites and that kind of thing, there is, listen to me, a lot of rat poison that is masquerading as medicine today in the church. So here, here's, the, here's the truth right now, right, right now. For some of you, this is just another sermon to endure. And then you can go to wherever. Several weeks ago, I understand that I mentioned uh, going to the garage, and there was no room in the garage because everybody got that mindset. So I won't say the name of a restaurant, okay? Uh, so it can be that, or, or right now, you, you, you can ask yourself the question. Please do this. Please do this. Am I devoting, am I devoting myself? We're going to see a verse that says that about Timothy. Am I devoting myself to the medicine, the only medicine that is going to help me? Am I devoting myself to sound doctrine? Because if you are not, you are devoting yourself to something. People, there is no neutrality. And I pray that you will be devoting yourself to the right thing. And that's why Paul said this, and this is the third reason why that we're studying these books. And I read for you in verses uh, 3 through 11 a little bit of that. The last record, you know, last words of people are important. And the last recorded words of the Apostle Paul to the church about how to not just survive but thrive in difficult days are found in these three letters. Here's what he says. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter days, times, and, and then I'm adding some from 2 Timothy, in the last time there will come times of difficulty, some will depart from the faith by what? By devoting themselves. Well, they just fell into it. No, there was a mindset. Nature abhors a vacuum, emptiness. So you will devote yourself to one or the other. And they depart the faith by devoting themselves. And Paul calls it out. He's not, Paul was the kindest guy around. Really, he was. But he never minced words. 
to cushion the reality. Deceitful spirits and the teachings. Whenever you see the word teachings in that context, usually it's that word that can be translated doctrine. So it's not just heterodoxy, just another way of believing about things. It's the doctrine of demons. You've either got orthodoxy, the words of God, or you've got heterodoxy, which Paul calls it doctrines of demons. Wow. And then evil people and imposters, do you feel like this some days? will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You see, ideas, listen to me, ideas have consequences. saw an article uh, when I was studying for this this last week. Ideas have consequences. Ralph Waldo Emerson, he was not a believer. He was an atheist, but he coined that famous phrase uh, uh, that's really very true. You know it, you've heard it. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an act, reap a habit. Are you listening? Are you listening, students? Sow a habit and reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. Consequences either bless or destroy. And behavior does not come from nothing. It comes from the prevailing views of reality that take root in the minds and the hearts of people and they bring forth either from orthodoxy, from sound doctrine, good, or from heterodoxy, evil. Let me ask you a question. This is an illustration of that. Ideas have consequences. How could a country allow, if not promote, the extermination of innocent people? Ideas? Produce consequences. Now, I'm not talking about our country. Obviously, there's an application. How could a country that is so advanced like Germany was, and the citizens were basically complicit, exterminate six million Jews? And by the way, that's not the only, there are other, it's not just German Aryans against Jews, the, the hatred there. In every culture, in every ethnic group, we can produce examples of genocide just like that. Now, I like what one author said when, when he was talking about ideas produce consequences. He said that what happened in Germany, listen, was not first the product of the politicians who wrote the laws that allowed the extermination of innocent people or the military people who carried it out. It first happened with ideas, philosophers. It happened years before when a, a philosophy called nihilism took over Europe by storm. There's a lot of different threads, and I'm not an expert in 
philosophies, but basically it said this, nihilism, life is meaningless. There is no value in life. That was taught in the schools, in academia, and it filtered down to the populace. Ideas have consequences. Frederick Nietzsche, who taught that God is dead. And his whole philosophy and nihilism produced the environment in which a country could exterminate six and a half million people. The extermination of innocents in America It didn't start with Planned Parenthood. It started with ideas that permeated the entire culture. And that's why Paul tells Timothy, I urge you, I'm leaving you to tell people not to follow these myths. Don't follow these endless genealogies. Now, he's referring not to today, but then, and we'll talk about that next week even more, but he's talking about the importance of sound doctrine. Until I come, Paul said. Now, let's bring this up today. He's talking to Timothy. Does that apply to us? Does that apply to me? Does that apply to you? Has Jesus come back? No. So until I come, what are you supposed to do? Devote yourself, Timothy. Devote yourself, dad, mom, grandmother, grandfather, student. Devote yourself. And this, you know, we, heritage is not a perfect church. Amen. And our, nobody is perfect who serves on staff and all the rest of that, but we are trying to do some certain things in this service that reflect what sound doctrine, orthodoxy tell us to do. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Why do we read the Bible so much? Sometimes you go to church, I, I don't know, maybe. Maybe you can go to churches where they don't even read the Bible. Even the preacher, they'll mention it every once in a while. Give attention, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, encouraging other people to live as Christ intended them to live. Do you do that? Am I doing that? I start with me, and then we work our ways out to teaching, to doctrine. Keep a close watch on yourself. What does that mean? Check your living. Are you living out godly conduct? Keep a close watch on yourself and your doctrine. Why? Because how you live will grow out of what you believe, out of your doctrine. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Wow. I tell you, I'm looking out and I'm seeing some of our elders and our pastoral staff, their elders too, and some of our deacons or leaders and, and others and teachers, there has been a deposit made of sound doctrine. And what do you need to do with it in your own life? 
What do I need to do with it as a pastor? Guard it. Guard it. What do you need to do with it? Guard it. Because things will come and try to chip away at it. Now, that's the introduction. Let's get to the actual verses 1 and 2. Let's introduce ourselves to a couple of guys and talk a little bit about them. Not exhaustively, but uh, we're we're going to, to look at that. Paul, the seasoned, and I put this down, warrior and apostle, and you'll understand what I'm talking about with both of those things in verse, in verse 1, uh, very first part. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, history, and I'll give you some places that you can go to refer to these. Acts 9. Don't, don't turn there. J- just jot it down. Go back and read it. This is how we, we come up to Paul writing to Timothy, Timothy's at Ephesus, and all the rest of that. So Paul, in Acts chapter 9, was dramatically converted. Okay. He saw Jesus. He heard Jesus. Jesus spoke to him on the road to Damascus. He had a dramatic, listen, and a direct call to be an apostle. Now, while sometimes the word apostle can be used to mean a person who plants churches, it's just loosely used. Oh, that guy has an apostolic ministry, kind of like Paul. He goes out and he plants churches or, or whatever the case may be. I want you to get this, and we're going to read the first quote on your outline, and I, I want to read that for you. While sometimes the word can refer to a missionary or a church planter, this is a special, limited office that refers only to a particular group. Look at what Thomas Schreiner says in that first quote. The apostles gave us the authoritative teaching by which the church continues to live to this day. And that is the only teaching we will need until Jesus returns. We know that new apostles won't appear since Paul specifically says he was the last apostle. And when James, the brother of John, died, he wasn't replaced by the apostle. Uh, He wasn't replaced. Apostles, in the technical sense, are restricted to those who have seen the risen Lord and have been commissioned by him. And no one since apostolic times fits such criteria. The apostles were uniquely appointed for the early days of the church to establish orthodoxy, orthodox doctrine. There is no warrant then for saying that there are still apostles today. Indeed, if anyone claims to be an apostle today, we should be concerned for such a claim opens the door to false teaching and to abuse of authority. I abide 100% with that statement. And why is it important? Because the church is built, look, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And there are plenty of people out there worldwide 
I read something this last week. There's a pastor in Nigeria who's an apostle, who's richer, said two guys, than Creflo Dollar and Joel Osteen put together. He claims to be an apostle. Listen, if the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, there is no further need for apostles because the foundation has been laid. We are no longer working on the foundation. We're using the foundation to teach the church of God. There's no need for apostles today. Now, here here is uh, the, the reason why this is important. If a friend of yours, maybe somebody in this church today, believes that that gift is, is in effect for today, then let's go back to this. You, you've got a problem. Because a man by the name of Joseph Smith had a direct, and you can go, this is in their book called The Doctrines and Covenants. Doctrines. By the way, Doctrines and Covenant, that book, is that orthodoxy or heterodoxy? Good. You learned a new theological word today. Okay. <laughs> he is an apostle. He has seen the Lord. The Lord Jesus specifically called him because he told Joseph Smith, and this is in the Book of Mormon, which they hold to be higher than the Bible, he told them that all of the churches in the world today are corrupt and there needs to be a new church. And 4.5 million people are being deceived and believing in doctrines of demons. Now, you know, that's hard to say for us because Mormons are just such nice people for the most part. They're moral, they're upstanding, and clean living for the most part. We don't want to overgeneralize. But they do not teach orthodoxy. In fact, their teachings would apply to what Paul says here in 1 Timothy, silly irreverent myths, look at some of the things they teach, and endless genealogies. The authoritative Word of God is given to us by the apostles, of which the Apostle Paul was one. Now, let me just run through the history. The Apostle Paul was called. He was converted. He took some time to study and, and, and to get with the, the other apostles. How did he develop his relationship with Timothy? First missionary journey, Paul came to, to Lystra. You know where Lystra is? You can look in the back of your Bible. Lystra is a town in south-central Turkey, okay, today. There's no, there's no Lystra there, so don't look for it on a modern map. And it was in that town, this is interesting, it was in that town that Paul, God used Paul to heal a man who was, who was lame. He had never walked. And the crowds went wild. You remember the story? The crowds thought that they were gods, he and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, come down out of heaven, and they wanted to sacrifice to them. 
Paul and Barnabas said, no, 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 that's not the way it should be. But then some, and I'll just say it like this, some Jewish thugs who had already been at their neck, Paul and Barnabas, came down to Lystra. Oh, the fickleness of crowds. Turned the crowds, and here were guys, a whole crowd, mob violence, one in, in one minute, they wanted to sacrifice to them, and in the next minute, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city and left him for dead, but he wasn't dead. He got up. Now, I don't know of, it just says he got up and went on preaching. I think there's at least a little bit of a miracle. And then he finishes, and then they come back, lo and behold, I don't know, I Knowing me, I think I would have said, you know, I'm going around Lystra. <laughs> I'm not going to go back. But it says they entered the city and they strengthened. Here's what it says. They strengthened the souls of the disciples. And this, this is strengthening when you tell them the truth. Continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You're not going to get out of this thing unscathed, he said. Now, there was a young man being raised, we don't know where his dad was, being raised in, in a mixed home with a, a, a God-fearing Jewish mom and grandmother, but a pagan dad, Greek dad. And his name was Timothy. And during this time, he's 16 years old. And he's watching this stuff. He could have been converted when... when Paul and Barnabas came back through, but let's just go on to the second missionary journey. And that's when we believe that Timothy was converted. He would have been about 21. Paul would have been mid-40ish, late-40ish, something like that. Acts 16, he asked, uh, he asked, Paul asked uh, Timothy to accompany them, and that's when Ephesus was birthed. And then in the third missionary journey, uh, if you read Acts 19, all of the incredible things that happened there, all of the miracles, and Timothy was right along with them. Now, let, let me say this because I, I want to describe Paul accurately. Uh, one of the descriptions that comes out of antiquity, uh, not, not very complimentary. He, he definitely would not fit the mold of a celebrity preacher today. A man of small stature with bald head, crooked legs, a good state of body with eyebrows meeting, oh, and a nose somewhat hooked, full of friendliness. Now, this was an actual description. I, I, I love this. Full of friendliness, for now he appeared like a man, and now he had the face of an angel. But I'll tell you what else he had. He had the face of a warrior. Paul was not a theologian that lived in an ivory tower, handing out, as Elton John said, tickets for God. Paul was in the trenches. He was a warrior. One of the reasons I say this is if you look up that word, he is an apostle by what? Invitation? Come on, if, if you want to do that, that's okay. It, it'll be cool. He was uh, an apostle by command. It was a militaristic 
commission that God gave to the apostle Paul with no option. Paul belonged to God. Now, he's going to say this to Timothy and by extension to all of us. Paul was a warrior and so are you. This charge I I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, by, by them you may fight the good fight, wage the good warfare. And then he says in another place, in several other places, I had to be selective, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. We are not volunteers. If you're a believer, if you're not a believer, then I was going to say you don't have anything to worry about. Yeah, you 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 really do. You've got hell to worry about. But if you're a believer, then this is one of those non-optional. You were conscripted into the army of God. You're not an apostle, but you are an ambassador with instructions to reproduce yourself spiritually, as Paul did with Timothy and Titus and a whole host of others. And when I, I was studying this last, last week, and I, anybody, anybody see the movie Braveheart? Ah, it's, it's tough, it's rough. But the very last line of Braveheart, anybody remember what it said? Because here are the Scots. Well, I think I've got it somewhere here. Maybe I don't. They were outnumbered and they were outgunned, but it said that they fought on the fields and they fought like, this always is, what does that mean? They fought like warrior poets. I'm just, I'm trying to visualize You're writing a poem and you're chopping off somebody's legs at the same time. No, think of this. Paul was a warrior poet, and we're going to get into this, fighting the good fight, but not with worldly weapons. The weapons of his warfare were spiritual. He was taking captive his thoughts to the obedience of Christ, and he was saying, this is what we we need to do. He was a warrior poet like David was a warrior poet. I saw this. We were at a uh, craft fair last weekend. You you know the three ways to have a good marriage, don't you, men? Say, yes, dear. Second, I was wrong. Third, I'll wait right here. So uh, last weekend was War Eagle, and we went to War Eagle, and I saw this guy with this T-shirt, and I thought, that, that is a cool T-shirt for veterans, U.S. veterans, veteran now. But I thought, this is a cool T-shirt for a Christian soldier. This is what Paul did. Someone who wrote a blank check, payable to the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody needs to make a T-shirt like that for an amount up to and including one's life. Paul was beheaded several years after writing these, uh, First and Second Timothy. Timothy stayed at 
Ephesus as far as we know for the rest of his ministry life and he was beaten to death for his faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, God our Savior and Christ Jesus our Lord, Paul knew and was always stunned by salvation and that's what we're going to be celebrating in a few minutes with the Lord's Supper. We're going to get there. But I I love the, the terminology, God our Savior, Christ Jesus our hope. See, it's God who is our Savior. Jesus is our Savior, but God's our Savior. It is God that set forth His Son as the propitiation for our sins. It is God who commended His own love toward us. It is God who blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It is God who chose us before the foundation of the world. And I think verse 1 is a fitting prelude to verse 15, which we didn't read, but we'll get to. And look at what Paul says in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. I am the chief of sinners. He never got over it. Paul an apostle, and a warrior. To Timothy, Paul's true true son in the faith. Again, this letter has military marks all over it, but it also has a, a family feel. He says, my true son in the faith. Scripture reveals that Timothy was raised, again, in a home where he had all kinds of influences, but ultimately it was a godly mom and a godly grandmother who were Jewish believers that taught him sound doctrine, orthodoxy, and probably, probably through the visit of Paul, first trip, second trip, missionary journey. And, and by the way, I, this is something about Timothy, and I'm going to, again, and, and if you're a, a young person, a teenager, hear this, Okay. Paul first met Timothy or heard Timothy when he was 16. He was called when he was 21. And one of the things it says about Timothy was that after his conversion, he was known throughout the area for his godly conduct. He had a reputation that all godly young people and all godly older people ought to run after. And that's why Paul would say later on, they got close. They they were family. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. He was family because Paul could trust him with the work. And then he said, and these were the gospel blessings. This is how he introduces his letter. Paul, a warrior apostle. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. Timothy, I want you to know, listen, I want you to know the true gospel blessings of grace, mercy, peace, and I'm going to go back to verse 1, hope. And that's the blessing that he gave to Timothy. It's a prayer. Man, if, if you're going to be a soldier, if you're going to be I'm going to just call you this, okay? Can I? If you're going to be a warrior poet for Jesus, 
you're going to need the resources of the gospel of grace, grace be with you, mercy, peace, and hope. Sometimes this is what preachers say at the end of the church time. Grace be with you. Saying grace be with you to a non-believer makes about as much sense as saying may the force be with you to someone who's never seen Star Wars. What? I'll tell you what, to somebody who's in the trenches dealing with the realities of life, raising a family, just, just making ends meet sometimes, working at a job that is hard, that is challenging, and sometimes, frankly, you don't like, do you need God's grace? That is a gospel promise. You need God's grace, and I need God's grace because there is no other hope. Mercy, that's what Paul talks about. Again, mercy was shown to me. You know what mercy is? And we're going to talk about, and maybe next week, Paul's downward spiral in humility. It was really an upward spiral. But mercy is a necessary ego deflator. I need mercy because I'm a sinner. And I can see and appreciate my sin, and I can see and I can appreciate God's mercy. And when we understand God's grace and God's mercy, what grows out of that? Peace. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Of God, the hope of the glory. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You know what that's talking about in reality? Not just today, but end of life issues. I talked to my 94 year old dad, usually talk to him about every weekend, every other weekend. But I talked to him this last Sunday for the last time. It'll be the last time because he is declining quickly and healthy. He's enjoyed a, a good life, good health. He's just old, and he's worn out. And when I was with him Sunday, I spoke to him about heaven and about the hope that Jesus gives you. And what I did was, and, and if, you, if you've never dealt with anything like this, if you have, then you know what I'm talking about, end-of-life issues with someone that you're, you, you, you care about, you're close to. And I was looking at him. He's now in a hospital bed, and hospice is coming. And, uh, but I was looking at him in that recliner, and I thought to myself, I'm going to be there unless an accident takes me out or something like that. I'm going to be there someday. I'm going to be there. I'm, 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 spittle's going to be running down my face. I'm going to be mumbling. 
hard to understand, hard to get a thought out. I'll be in a diaper. Someday, these are end-of-life issues. And you know, I was thinking about his 94 years, and he's lived a lot of life, and he's owned a lot of cars, and he's, you know, a simple life. He, he's done a lot of things. But when you get to the end, if you don't have the mercy and the grace of God that le- leads to peace and hope. What have you got? Nothing. But thank God we do have hope, those of us who are in Christ. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. If you don't know Jesus today, maybe something that has been revealed to you from Scripture would cause you to look and to say, um, God is holy and I'm not. Someone has to pay for those sins and I either pay for them in hell or I give myself to the Lord Jesus Christ and he has paid for them on the cross. And you can give yourself to Jesus Christ today. Repent from your sins. Turn to Jesus Christ. Ask him to wash you through the blood, through the broken body that he so freely offers. And for those of us who know him, when we, in just a few moments, will take these little elements that are so, so highly symbolic of what Jesus has done for us, it's a chance to remember what he has done.